Hello and welcome to Unofficial Partner, the sports business podcast. I'm Richard Gillis. The Tour de France is one of the great sporting moments of the year with a storied history and cultural heritage that's both international and uniquely French. Today's guest is journalist Alex Duff, who has written a book called Le Fric, which uncovers the business story of this great French institution and its ever-changing relationship with money and power. It talks about the secretive family who own it and the multiple attempts to wrestle control by rival groups keen to make the tour the centre of a world cycling league. Today's episode is sponsored by our friends at Turnstar who are asking a good question. Do you know what your sponsorship is really worth or are you just guessing? Turnstar uses real market rates to quantify the value of every single sponsorship right within a deal, looking beyond the traditional media metrics to calculate the value of the exposure, intellectual property and direct benefits. This enables Turnstile to deliver a recommended transaction price that's comprehensive, accurate and defensible. So don't pay too much and don't leave money on the table. Know the fair market price and buy and sell with confidence. Get in touch with Turnstile at turnstilegroup.com. Again, a link in the show notes to this podcast will direct you to their website. about the Tour de France what's your relationship to it I know you're a business journalist is it something that you've always had an interest in personally not really no so I moved to Spain I was brought up in in the UK and like most kids growing up in in the UK didn't really know anything about cycling I wasn't one of those people who who watched it on Channel 4 there was like quite a, a few people who got into the Tour de France by watching it on Channel 4 yeah, uh, I think that would have been in the 80s. And then in, in 2003, I moved to Spain and I bought a house in the mountains just outside Madrid. So that's how I got into cycling. I bought a, a racing bike and then I began to watch it on Spanish TV. The, there's quite a lot of coverage of, of races on, on Spanish TV, not only the tour, but they also show more minor races. So I, I slowly got into it via that. And then I was working for Bloomberg as a journalist and persuaded them to send me to the Tour de France to cover it. I think the first year was 2007. And Bloomberg being Bloomberg, they wanted to know the money angle. They didn't really, they were interested in the race, but they wanted mm. to know who was making money from the Tour de France. So then I guess that's how this book started. Part of your book is how other people and business people, bankers, private equity, rich people see it and want to make more money of it. They think it's underperforming commercially or they think there's opportunities there that are exploited. They think there's inefficiency. And this is just the story of the sports business today, isn't it? You've got these much loved historic sports events, which for some reason have appeared in the ether almost for in our lives. And now they're being looked at from a different lens, almost. They're look, being looked at as commercial vehicles. And I always think the Tour de France is a bit of an anomaly. Everyone, when they say, right, we're going we're gonna to make money from cycling or make money from cricket or golf or whatever it is, there is a format. You can feel where they're going to go. It's going to be a bit of NFL. It's going to be a bit of Champions League. There's going to be chunks of IPL teams. All of these component parts and Formula One. But it's quite difficult to look at Tour de France and and see how they were going to approach it. Let's just, that's a long way of saying, who owns this thing? So since 1947, it's been owned by the same family called the Almory family. And they're pretty low profile. They don't like to give interviews, they're publicity shy. They like to stay in the background. 
So they let their management do all the public speaking on their behalf. And, the, and they are best known as ASO, so Amory Sport Organization. In the business, everyone calls them ASO. And so they are, that's the holding company of the Amory family. And they're the tour director, uh, a guy called Christian Proudhon, works for ASO. And so his, he works for the family, basically. And he's the, the front man of the Tour de France. And so when journalists ask people at the Tour de France, they go to him. And obviously the tour, the journalists who cover the tour, unlike me when I was working for Bloomberg, they don't really follow the business side. So it very much goes under the radar. And, and the talk is about the sport. Obviously, most people are probably more interested in that. You know, it's, But uh, yeah, the, the family has been around for a long time. The guy who's, who actually took over the race after the Second World War was a member of the... French resistance, and he set up a newspaper business. The basically after the Second World War, the all the newspapers which had published under the Nazi uh, regime were kicked out, and a whole new industry started from scratch. And he was one of the main players in this new industry. And the Tour de France had always been connected to a newspaper. It was started to promote newspapers, a sports newspaper called Lauto. He managed to take control of the tour to promote his newspaper, which is called, and he ran it in conjunction with one of the old editors of Lauto, which became L'Equipe, which still exists today in French, famous French newspaper. So it's 50% yeah. the Almory family and 50% the owner of what is now L'Equipe. And then eventually, Mr. Monsieur Almory, he took over the whole race in 1965. So since 1947, he owned 50%, and then he now, since the 60s, 100%. Uh, so he obviously died some time ago. This is now his sister-in-law, who is the, the matriarch of the race. She's now in her 80s, and she has two children, Jean-Étienne and Aurore, who, uh, between them, those three, they now are the owners of, of the race. And commercially, I guess the, the model is, always, is sponsorship and media revenue. Those are the, the main inputs. It's, yeah. it's, not, it's a ticketless event, isn't it? That's right, yeah. It's almost, in, in, I think it's unique in that you don't have to pay to watch the Tour de France. Uh, you can just roll up and, uh, yeah, millions of people watch it free of charge. And so that makes it complicated from a, a revenue point of view. It's, it's difficult to make money. They sell television rights in France. The problem is it's extremely expensive to film because you've got to send up helicopters, you've got motorbikes, you've got a, an aeroplane up, up in the sky with a satellite feed. Uh, and so this is a moving circus and you've got to follow it all around and it, and it costs a fortune. So for the, the public broadcast in France, they are paying a lot of money to actually put the to broadcast it and so therefore the amount they pay for the rights is less than maybe it would be if it wasn't so expensive they pay around i think it's around 30 million euros a year to add it to the france uh, and then there's international rights as well uh, and there are around five main sponsors three of them french and, and two two uh, not not french and so those that those are the main revenue sources and uh, then they sell the the hosting rights, so the stage hosts will, will pay money. Uh, so if it's a start this year, it starts outside France and, and Denmark. Uh, typically, if it's a foreign host, because it's a palaver to get all your 
for all the this circus to go out of France, you, they pay a premium, so they pay maybe five to ten million for the hosting rights if you've got a couple of two or three days. So that also supplements the income. So things like the Grand Depart, because obviously it's come from over here at some point, that was essentially a conceit to to create another revenue stream for the event, presumably. Yeah, it, it creates more revenue, but also crucially, it, it tries to uh, attract new fans. And I think with the, the Grand Depart in London, they were very successful. It, it really got a whole lot of people into cycling who maybe didn't know anything about it. So World Series Cycling, just explain this, because in the prologue to the book, you set this up. And that feels, again, listeners of the podcast will know of you've got the official event and rights holder. And then you've got the sort of threat from the disruptor, inverted commas. Who are World Series Cycling? So World Series Cycling was basically one guy, an entrepreneur called Jonathan Price, who had worked for Manchester United in the commercial team of Manchester United. His job was to get new sponsors for Manchester United in in the 90s, just after they'd listed on the stock exchange. And so he was turning these small local sponsors into multinational companies. So at the time, Manchester United sponsors were like the local car dealership, and he was bringing in big blue chip sponsors and started to find his way around football and and worked for Manchester United for several years. And then he left and and worked as a consultant for Florentino Perez at Real Madrid. He helped him get elected. and Quite the CV this bloke's building up. Yeah, I'm doing a good (laughs) PR job for him. He he also worked for or worked with G14. Most some of your listeners will know was the was the big what is now I suppose ECA, which was the big football clubs sort of pressure group, the the big clubs. Uh, and he with the G14 teams, he set up this tournament in uh, Malaysia, a youth team tournament in which the G14 teams sent their sort of youth teams to Malaysia to play a tournament. It lasted one year. I think it was quite successful. There was a legal dispute, uh, and it didn't didn't run to a second year but anyway he then was looking for other projects to to, to help to make work and, and looked at cycling uh, he didn't really have any background in cycling he didn't know much about it but he understood that the teams were all united in in the fact that they did not get any money from the Amory family they get nothing of the television income they got nothing of the sponsorship rights that the, the race creates so they were you know, all slightly peeved by the fact that they were just turning up and putting on the show and, and getting nothing in return or the money was going to the family. So he figured that he could unite them and to, to put pressure on the, the family. The way he presented it was that they would work with the Tour de France to, to build professional cycling. So professional, the Tour would become the centrepiece of this new championship, season-long championship, in which there was a sort of real narrative in which all the people could understand a little bit more about cycling. Not, you know, because at the moment, you, people just turn on for the Tour and they don't really understand. The casual fan doesn't understand the, the sort of ins and outs of the, the rest of the season. The, the, the dedicated fan you know, knows everything about the, the spring classics in, in, in Flanders and the Giro d'Italia and the Vuelta Espana. So there's a sort of patchwork calendar in which you've got different race organisers. His idea was to build, you know, consolidate one calendar, a bit like Bernie Eccleston did with Formula One back in the 80s and the 90s. So at the time, Formula One was a disparate, as you disparate, a lot of races and his and Jonathan Price's idea was to put them all together into one calendar uh, and particularly aim for the a- the US and Asia where there are no big cycling races and, and try to make it a global sport 
if you want to make it a cohesive and something package which the fan could understand. And the Tour de France would be like the super of this new championship. And so he promised the teams like a equity in this championship. For the Tour de France, he said, look, I, I can help you make cycling a, a much bigger global sport and, and everyone will benefit. So he, he worked with Rothschilds, the bank, to, to work on a proposal and crunched all the numbers and had a series of secret meetings. It was all quite clandestine at the, at, the, at the start because he wanted all the teams to be on board. Teams like in any sport, there's a lot of rivalry between the teams and they didn't want to, he didn't want, he wanted to make sure they were united so they could take on the Amory's as it were. So they held these secret meetings in the city of London and, and tried to become united. The problem was for him is that the French teams, there are about around 20% of the teams, 25% of the teams at the Tour are French. And they're actually, some of them are wild card invitations from, by the Amory family. So he, he had trouble trying to get the French teams on, on side because they had a certain loyalty to the family and to ASO. And uh, so that was the, the barrier. There was lots of fighting talk, much of it behind the scenes, how the, the, there, were, there was even talk of a boycott of the Tour de France. But the, the weakness in the plan was the Tour de France would still go ahead even without the foreign teams. You know, They could just put on amateur teams and, and people would still come out and watch the race because... The Tour de France is runs on two levels. On one, one level, it's a sport, a high-performance sport. On the other level, it's like a national festival. It's, it's sort of something part of the French psyche. And they, they come out and watch it and they cheer the riders, even though they don't know much about cycling. Some, many of them there's, a, there's a bit of a sort of the London Marathon vibe about it as well. It's almost like a village fete. Uh, on, on a national level. And so you'll have people put up bunting, they make hail bays in the shape of bicycles so the helicopters above can take pictures They in the evening afterwards. Uh, and it's, it's so it's like a coming together of the French people, the local community. For generations, it's been like that. So foreign uh, entrepreneur and, and try and change that is obviously hugely problematic because you're trying to mess with 100 years of history. And I don't think he really understood the Tour de France. He didn't think that it would be so difficult to, to take that on. And, and he maybe underestimated a little bit the, the, the length he would have to go to to, to, to try and change that. And when was finish. this? started around 2010. There were like lots of um, secret meetings between the teams. It wasn't really reported fully at the time. There was whispers about what was going on. And when, he only really came out and talked about it publicly when it was on, on its last legs because he'd already had French oppose it. Also the UCI, the ruling body, was against it because they they wanted to have more say in the future of this sport. They didn't want this this new championship being formed without without their sort of input. So there were a lot of there was a lot of opposition, and, and he only Jonathan Price only came out and talked about it publicly when things were sort of it was sort of a final attempt to try and make everybody understand what he was trying to do and how he was trying to do something positive to to grow the sport. What's he doing now, Jonathan? I don't know. I guess he's still working on, on, on projects in, in sports. He didn't want to talk to me, actually. I have, I've talked to him in the past, but I haven't. The last couple of years, he didn't um, want to talk to me about the book, maybe because it turned out as he wanted it. But yeah, I, I, to be honest, I don't know what he's working on at the moment. At some point, CVC looked at this, didn't they, or looked at Tour de France? Yeah, so it, in fact, Jonathan Price wasn't the first person to do something like this. Just a couple of years before, CVC had, had looked at something similar, an entrepreneur called Walter van den Hout. 
So it was basically the idea of Walter von Hout to who comes from like a reality TV background. He's a cycling nut, like many people from Flanders and Belgium. He's complete, completely about about cycling and loves cycling. He used to be a TV sports presenter. And so he had the a similar idea, like let's make a global championship. Uh, and he persuaded CVC to get behind this. And CVC actually said, okay, we'll invest 100 million euros on this because we like it. We think it's a good idea. We think it can really work. At the time, CVC had owned Formula One, so it recently bought Formula One and uh, they were looking at other sports properties they thought it would make sense. But again, he had the same problem, um, Walter van der had the same problem. He he probably got further with ASO, but he, at the end of the day, he said that was a French culture which he couldn't get past. And you can't do this kind of championship without the Tour de France. It, would, it just wouldn't work because the Tour de France just dominates the whole landscape. So if you can't get to the France, then basically everything else fails. So if I'm Team Sky and I look at the cycling market or was, you know, Team Sky at their peak, it is a frustration, I guess, that there is limited opportunities. From a team perspective, I'm guessing there's a lot to like about a World Series cycling or a global cycling league or, or whatever it is. There's the idea of it has merit, but the corporate and historical stuff just gets in the way, I, I guess. Yeah, I mean, even the fans, you know, the, the British fans who were into cycling, the guys, the girls who were, began watching in the 80s, watching the Tour de France, they, not talking about only French people, but many of the traditional cycling fans don't want to see this kind of commercial approach to cycling. They like the tradition. They like how it, it doesn't become super commercial. They don't want to see a race in Los Angeles or race in Tokyo they'd much rather see the race in Belgium and, and, and Italy and, and over the the Alps and the Pyrenees that you know the traditional routes so it's not only the French who are against this I guess it's a little bit like when the Premier League started into the Premier League and Sky and, and it's the same way I think we don't want necessarily want to see change within the sport Sky actually looked at World Series Cycling, and they were quite interested in proactively becoming involved. They helped unite the teams a little bit. They were in two minds because they were doing so, so well with Bradley Wiggins and Chris Froome. They had, you know, it was a huge success. But to win the Tour de France, uh, first British rider, within a few years of getting into cycling was tremendous for, for Sky. They didn't want to damage all that PR success they had with the team by getting into this new championship and, and causing a political ruckus. So they were sort of hovering in between the two and they didn't really know which way to go. There's also, I guess, in, in I don't want to be uh, stereotypical, but there is a protectionism within France. Quite often you see in sailing as well, actually, that they resist what they would see as the Americanization of not just of sport, but their cultural life and other parts of society. And I suppose it's hard to separate when something like the Tour de France is so embedded into the cultural fabric of the country. I can see that there is a quite a nationalistic element to that as well. Even down to a sport sponsorship, they were they weren't particularly keen on Coke coming in, were they? That's right. I mean, I think I mean for many years the official sponsor drink sponsor was Perrier, and so the the winner that sort of the, the yellow jersey would always down a bottle of Perrier after winning, and it would you know that was the drink sponsor for many years, and and, and then when Greg LeMond became successful at the tour, Coca Cola became shifted aside Perrier, and there was quite a lot of people saying, well that. That can't be right. The French 
didn't like the idea that Coke, because Coke represented in the 80s a lot of things that the society did not approve of. There was, it was seen as the Coca-Colization of, of France. And there was a lot of um, anti-American feeling among some people in France. So, you know, when Greg Lamont and Lance Armstrong arrived on the scene, there was, I guess, the backstory was, you know, these Americans, they don't really understand our culture and they're trying to do things differently. And there's a story I think I tell in the book about an English journalist asking a question at one of the, the race press conferences. And normally everything in those days was in French. And, and this English journalist asked a question in English and everybody started hissing and, and just basically booing and hissing. And, 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 the, and the, the, the cyclist who was being asked the question was French. He just rolled his eyes and, and answered in French. So that gives you... A, an idea of the um, sort of barriers to foreign cultures coming into the tour. Of course, th- things have changed a lot since those days, and, and now you you know many of the teams English is their first language, and there's a in press offices which there weren't in, back in the day. So it's not like that anymore, of course. But but yeah, the, in the eighties, I think there was quite a lot of um, foreigners coming into the, to the Tour de France. What do you think the the sort of potential for it? as a sporting entity in terms of its international reach what's it like i mean are are the americans engaged with the tour de france um well it's, it's not as big as you might think the lance armstrong downfall really hurt the um, credibility of the tour de france in, in america i think corporate america had always been worried about doping you know even before armstrong because was doping is, is pretty much ingrained in cycling to some extent it became sort of more serious in the 90s just because this wonder drug called EPO arrived. Um, so it became much more important in the 90s, but it always been part of cycling. So the American sponsors were always slightly worried about that. I mean, when he overcanceled and won the Tour de France, all that was forgotten because it was such a feel-good story that really um, ironically helped to raise the profile of the Tour de France. But when he finally was brought down, that was very negative for the Tour's credibility. And I don't think it has recovered properly in, in America. The, the audiences are still relatively small. Very much, it's, it's very much a European sport still. It's just, you know, Spain, Italy, Germany, maybe the Netherlands, Belgium, France, outside there, and a little bit, a little bit now in the UK, but it hasn't really changed. Its its heartland has always been those countries, neighbouring France, um, and unfortunately, the demographic is is you know it's an ageing demographic. You know, the, the average cycling fan, I think, is in his probably in his fi- mid to late fifties, and there's a real difficulty attracting new fans now. I, there's going to be a Netflix documentary, a bit like Drive to Survive in Formula One. They're going to film this year's tour. And the idea is that they can reach a new audience through Netflix. That does, has some potential. I think it's quite exciting. Good time to be a uh, sports documentary maker, isn't it? Exactly. There's a lot yeah. of Drive to Survive uh, sort of copycat documentaries being made. Yeah, apparently there's a lot of money going into the documentary I, th- I don't know uh, i mean i think it's all coming from netflix i don't think it's uh cycling is the teams or anything are paying for that but yeah there's 
this, this is, is just one of many sports documentaries, and it, it's it's uh, the problem is that you know if you're not into cycling and you don't know the characters involved, it's not as interesting. Uh, so that's what back in the day with these championships, you would, they were trying to create a narrative, so you got to know the the characters, and they became as Formula One. We know Sebastian Vettel, we know Lewis Hamilton, and all these um, drivers, and that, that sort of elevates it into sort of a a soap opera almost as well as outside the sport and and cycling doesn't really have that anymore because most people wouldn't know the favorites for this year's Tour de France just because they're just not big well known enough no it's interesting because we're in a cycling boom aren't we you know well have been and uh, I can't think of many if any if I was I wouldn't want to be tortured about who the top 10 cyclists in the world are at the moment but congratulations on the book by the way so is it available in the normal places? Is it out yet? Uh, so it's out on June the 9th, and uh, hope, hopefully it sheds a bit, some new light on, on the race that hasn't really been told before. Yeah, well, I enjoyed it. Thank you very much, Richard. Nice to talk to you.